So, all right. So last week, uh, let's see who was who was not here last week. Okay. So almost half the class not here last week. So we're going to start over. <laughs> I'm joking. Thank you for joining us this week. I know some of you are out of town and, and other things going on. Last week we talked just, we spent a little bit more time talking about the, basically the definition of conversion. And we talked about the fact that every time the gospel is preached in the book of Acts, and still today, conversion does not happen, Right? There are examples in the book of Acts. For example, we had King Agrippa, we had Festus, uh, Felix with Festus. We have those examples where the Apostle Paul taught a gospel sermon, and yet people did not accept Jesus and become Christians. And so I think it's very important for us to see those examples so that we can understand that if the Apostle Paul was not 100% successful, batting a 1,000, so to speak, uh, it should not be our expectation that every heart out there that hears the gospel when we share it is going to be prepared to make a response and accept Jesus. So um, the work is done by the, the gospel itself because the gospel, as we read last week, is the power of God. Power of God. Unto salvation. salvation. Ah, there we go. See, y'all know it. The power of God unto salvation, the gospel, the good news, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Son of God came from heaven, he came to earth, he lived as a man, sinless, and he died on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for us. Now, the um, question was asked after class last week about understanding and talking about this idea of covenant relationship with God and the new covenant. And I have a six-week class. I have five weeks left. I need to cover the conversions in the book of Acts. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the idea of covenant. That could be a 12-week class all by itself. Um, I've done that before, and there's, there's a whole lot that can go into that. But under this new blood, signed in blood, the blood of the Son of God contract and agreement that we have with God, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and preaching that message to people, sharing, and it, I'm not going to use the word preach, but sharing that message with people allows the power of God unto salvation, the gospel, to do its work in people's lives. And the Holy Spirit is at work there, and so we share, and we allow the Holy Spirit and the gospel to, to be the power of God to do the, to do the work. Everyone's heart's not ready, so sometimes there's not conversion. Last week, we briefly, at the end of class, looked at the day of Pentecost. We're going to pick back up there today, and then we're going to jump to Acts chapter 8. If you, uh, for those of you who are not here last week, um, here's some copies of the syllabus that we're following. It's real short. There's not a lot to it, obviously. <coughs> Anybody else? So just to give you an idea of where we're going to be looking, uh, next week I'm going to be out of town, so I'm going to ask Mark to teach class for me. Is that going to work, Mark? Sure. <laughs> Mark is going, I'm going with Mark, which I think means Mark will be out of town too. So, um, so I will not be here. Now, uh, based on who was here last week, I asked Ron 
to teach, and he said if no one else was uh, going to do that, then he would do it. But with Mike here, I'm just going to put a little pressure on you, Mike, and say if you want to step up and teach next week, the opportunity is there for you. I have some lessons prepared I can give to you, but Ron's willing if so. Between the two of you, we'll have somebody <laughs> teaching class next week. No pressure. All right. Acts chapter 2. What has happened here as we leave the Gospels and enter into the book of Acts? What's going on in the world of, well, in Jerusalem, in history, and in Christianity? What's happening as we get into the book of Acts? The world turned upside down. The world's turned upside down. Okay. So you're a flat earth society person and you think it's flipped. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> no, we're not talking about literally the, the globe flipping. We're talking about culture. We're talking about the, the world as people understand it and the way it works in Jewish society. And in, it hasn't really flipped upside down for the Roman Empire at this point yet. That was about to start happening, but in Jewish society, it was happening, and literally for the whole world, it had, and they just didn't realize it yet, okay? Why had the, what had happened that had literally changed everything for humankind? This is a simple question, folks. Okay, the Son of God died on a cross, and he rose again from the grave, okay? So literally the world had changed. And a lot of people just didn't realize it. Now, the day of Pentecost is a, that's a, another one of those words that we don't use anywhere except in religion, right? Pentecost. What does Pentecost mean? 50. Okay. So seven weeks after the Passover Sabbath, we get to this day of Pentecost and and so we use this as a marker, and it is not a fixed date because the Passover date is not a fixed date. If we think about when we celebrate Easter, it's not on the same date every year. As a matter of fact, this year it's all the way up in March, this coming year. It'll be really early, uh, one of the earliest dates it can fall on. So it's not a set date, but we count from the... Passover and we go seven weeks forward and that's where we are and there's still millions of people that are gathered together in Jerusalem and it's just been uh, this very short period of time obviously since Jesus rose from the grave and so the the apostles are gathered together together and now what event happens on this day so Jesus has just risen from the dead a few weeks before he's ascended back into heaven now what's <laughs> happened on this day that's so significant Jesus had promised the apostles that he was going to send someone. The Holy Spirit. Okay, So Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was going to come as a teacher and a guide and a specific word that he used to them, a comforter. Okay, And so the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles, and it's come in a very miraculous, apparent way. So Luke, as he is seeing this, he, he, he has this visual and physical... Um, awareness that things are happening. What is it that he describes for us? Tongue, it's like tongues of fire that so that he can see he can see something and then there's also what? 
sound of a rushing mighty wind. So there's this roaring sound and it looks like tongues of fire above their heads. And then they begin to teach about what does, what does it tell us in Acts chapter 2 that the apostles were actually telling the people about who are gathered together in Jerusalem. First, he is telling them, eventually he tells them that Jesus is the Son of God. That happens late in the chapter, right before our, our favorite Acts 2.38. But what is it early on that he's talking to them about? How they had crucified the Savior. Well, before that, long before that, actually. He's telling about all the wonderful works that God has done. And again, understanding that there's many Jews gathered together, that probably would have been a recap of their history with God and the exodus from Egypt. I mean, we can assume a few things here uh, that would have been included in that. But he goes through and then he shares some prophecy from the book of Joel back in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 down through 21. He shares some prophecy from the book of Joel. He shares some of the words of David with them. And so he's going back to their scholars and their writings and the, the religious writings, the Bible that they would have been have known about. And then he gets down into verse 36 and Mary said he tells them that about Jesus and who Jesus is. In verse 36 of Acts chapter 2 he says therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So, as we look at the idea here, and then of course we, we read on through Acts chapter 2, we read that how many became Christians that day? 3, yeah, about 3,000 souls, okay? So as we look at that, and we think about um, what we will refer to as the steps of salvation. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? What's the first one I'm going to write on the board? Here. 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 Oh, good, the green works. Okay. You have to hear the word preached. You have to hear about or read about in some way. You have to receive the word of God, the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what the apostles are preaching this day. Now, miraculously, the people who are gathered together who spoke all these different languages because they were from all these nations all over the earth. Each one of them was hearing and, and, and understanding. Even though these men were from Galilee, and they were not trained to speak in all these languages. Everyone was hearing miraculously through the Holy Spirit in whatever language they were understanding what was being said. So they were hearing the word. Now, after if you <clears throat> hearing the word obviously is not enough, right? Okay. How many of you know somebody who's sat in a church pew their entire life? They've heard the gospel preached thousands, literally thousands of times. And they've never become a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. I have a cousin back at Valiant. He's one of the most faithful independents of the church. He's about seven years older than me. His entire life, he's been in church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night when he's not working. He's one of the most faithful and generous givers in 
the offering and the donation to the congregation there. And he's never become a Christian. He's never been baptized. He's never responded. He's heard the word. And I absolutely, I believe that he believes what he's heard. Oh, no. I'm going to hold out on me. There we go. I'm convinced he believes what he's heard. Hearing the word is not enough. You have to believe it. If you don't believe it, then it's not doing you any good. I mean, let's talk about the word faith for a minute because conversion, which we talked about last week, is about... Conversion is, I'm going to say, not just change, but significant life-altering change. This is about changing who you are, what you do, the way you think, the way you speak. It's about changing your entire life, okay? When we talk about, I am going to convert from a person who is not a Christian to being a Christian, we're talking about, I am going to change the substance of who I am. Even if I'm already a good person, it still changes who I am. It changes the reasons and the purpose that I have for what, why I do what I do, right? So, so conversion is this. So I'm going to hear the word. I'm going to believe the word. My cousin Martin, I am convinced he believes in Jesus Christ. I've had conversation after conversation with him. Okay? Guess what else? He has done many times. Because as I said, I've had conversations with him. And in those conversations, he has, with his own words, told me that he believes the word that's been preached. Okay? Which means he's done what? He's confessed, okay? Because confess is just about us through our words and actions showing that we believe, right? Sometimes I think, even though we've heard it a thousand times, we kind of put confession and repentance and get them a little mixed up and lump them together, and they're really two different things. Confession is about more of a, our life and our words reflecting that we believe this message. I'm going to have to race this to make room, aren't I? But he has confessed to me that he believes, He's confessed to the other to the church. I mean, in multiple conversations, that he believes the word. Okay. Okay. Y'all got the significant life-altering change, right? But there's a one-time action that marks you as the Holy Spirit. Marks you with the Holy Spirit when you receive the Holy Spirit and you publicly. Uh, show a sign of obedience to this message of the good news and there's also an ongoing action that is part of this conversion process of becoming Christian. What's the next two steps that we put up here on the board typically? Repent. Okay. Which takes us back to when I had conversion up here and I had, you know, significant life-altering change, what's the simple word that we use for repentance? Change. Change. Okay. It's, it's about change. It's about doing away with the things that are ungodly in your life and becoming godly. Okay. 
So repentance is really wraps up the word conversion here, but this is a process of all this other's a part of it. Martin has not made a decision, even though he's one of the best men I know, to do everything he does in his life for the purpose of glorifying God and being obedient to God. Now, I can get into some philosophical reasons why he hasn't done that, but Martin has heard the word. Martin believes the word. Martin has confessed his belief. Martin has not made a decision to change and live 100% according to God's word. He has not made a decision to repent. Okay? Now, as we read through Acts chapter 2, and we're looking at the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, and we're probably not going to get very far into Acts chapter 8 today if we do it all. But as we get into these folks on the day of Pentecost, these some 3,000 souls who were added to the church who became Christians that day, did they hear the word preached? No. Okay. We have, we have a statement that they heard the word preached. Do we, do we get from the scriptures the idea that they believed what they heard? Why do we, why do we think that? Their hearts were pricked. Their hearts were pricked. Okay. We, and we kind of explored that statement briefly last week. I mean, I think they were overcome with guilt. Uh, and I think the guilt of knowing that they had been part of crucifying the Son of God probably resulted in a whole lot of fear as well. I mean, I had a point in my life where I was very fearful of what was going to happen to me because of the sin that was in my life if I did not become a Christian or receive God's forgiveness. But I didn't have this this immediate um, guilt and responsibility feeling for having been a part of a crowd that was crying to crucify the Son of God. I can't imagine how they... If, if, if there were those who are listening to the apostles who had been there in the crowds in the, the mob that was crying for Jesus to be crucified and they were present and they were hearing the message when it says they were pricking their hearts, I, I can only imagine that they were scared to death. And they asked, what do we do? I mean, just like, what do we do now? We're doomed. What do we do now? Do we see a statement here in Acts chapter 2 that they confessed? They ask what they should do. They ask what they should do. Okay. As we look through, this is one of the things, and we'll go back in the very last week and we'll talk about that. As, as we look through the conversion stories in the book of Acts, and as we think about people that we know, maybe yourselves, as you became a Christian, we're not always going to see, in the history at least, this full step-by-step, step, oh, I see right here where they confessed. But their actions were a confession of their belief. The fact that they did something about it, because we also can see as we read on down in verse 40 on that they changed, right? As we read on through verse 40, but as we read in, in uh, <coughs> verse 41, what did they do next in verse 41? They were baptized. So we must put that on the board, right? And every 
conversion story that we're going to look at in the book of Acts, every time someone becomes a Christian, we find this happening. And as we get into the as we get into Acts chapter eight, you, have, how many of you ever heard the argument? Well, that's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You ever heard that argument from someone? That's not talking about water baptism. That's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As we get into Acts chapter 8 here in just a little bit, one of the things we're going to see is that there were people who were being baptized and becoming Christians as Philip was teaching in Samaria. But they had, because early on in the book of Acts, we frequently find people receiving the Holy Spirit in miraculous ways with their conversion as it was proving God's word and establishing who Jesus was. But as we read in Acts chapter 8, we'll find that they became Christians, they were baptized, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. And then the apostles came and laid hands on them, and that happened. And so when we read about that baptism in Acts chapter 8 specifically, we're going to see this indeed was not talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8. But again, this is the way that uh, we teach it. It's very clear from the Bible that a person has to hear the Word of God. They have to hear the Gospel they have, you have to believe it. Without belief, none of the rest of it matters. It's just checking boxes and going through actions that are meaningless. But by the same token, if you were to change your life and, and be a good person, be honest and have integrity and serve people and be giving and take care of other people, and you did all that without believing Jesus is the Son of God, well, you're doing good work and you're making a difference in the world, but you haven't made a difference in your own eternity. If you were baptized without believing, what good would it do you? Hmm? None. I mean, we have a lot of we have a lot of Christian groups out there in the world that believe in infant baptism, right? We have one very large major group, the Catholic Church, believes in infant baptism. And yet, when Peter talks about baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3, he talks about the answer of a good conscience. Okay? Baptism is not a removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not taking a bath. It's not about getting wet. But it is the answer of a good conscience before God. Well, obviously, a baby who's baptized or someone who, who does not believe is not being baptized out of a good conscience and a call to be obedient to the gospel message of Christ. So as we look at this, we, off, we, we, will, we will build a plan of salvation. You've seen it in many tracks. I'm sure you've heard it taught many, many times in your life. Most of you have. But it's important that we understand that. And again, as we go through the, as we go through the gospel, or through the, the book of Acts, we're, we're not going to necessarily get to see in everybody's life that they changed. Or we're not necessarily going to see a full-blown statement of confession, but we will see <coughs> confession in their actions and that they did something about what they believed, okay? So, and then we could turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, if we want to talk about our ongoing responsibility after this. And what does Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 tell us? Live faithfully even to the point of death and you will receive a crown of life, okay? So, you could do all of this and turn your back on God, and what would your status be? Lost. Lost. Lost, okay. So, even though this isn't the part where we get into Christ and added to the church, it is extra living good. 
it is crucial, critical, very important that we continue to live faithful, that we spend time in the Word, that we study, that we seek to know how to live a life that pleases God. Because our ultimate aim and our goal, and this, this is, you're going to get a little Tracy opinion in here now, okay? Where do you want to go when you die? Just one, just one of you. <laughs> Karen, where do you want to go? Heaven, okay. All right. So if you ask a lot of people why they are Christians, why they do what they do, they will tell you because they want to go to heaven, okay? So without getting into the events of Friday night that were tragic in our community, I'm going to talk about high school football just for just for a brief moment, okay? Because I think it's the current sport that's getting kicked off, and we could use any other any other example. The Apostle Paul used some sporting activities off an example. If your goal when you start the season as a football team is to win the state championship, okay, that's the goal is to win the state championship, okay then what, what, what are you doing to make that happen is going to be the next question I have for you, right? And if you go, well, we're just going to we're going to walk up there and get that gold ball, you know? When December 15th rolls around, we're going to be standing on the stage and they're going to hand us the gold ball. Well, that's not going to cut it. Just showing up to, at the, the trophy presentation is not going to do it, right? So we could break it down in a whole bunch of stuff, but... Every time that you are in possession of the football on the football field, what's what's your goal? Score. Yeah, go score a touchdown. Well, and even before that, it might be just to pick up three or four yards on that play, right? But ultimately, ultimately, you have practices all through the offseason, you have practices during the week, and your 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 basic goals on a minute-by-minute basis during a football game is to score more points than the other team that you're playing. And that might be 50 points one week and it might be seven one week, you know, during practice, your goal is to get better and learn to work as a team to support one another. And when you're in practice, if you are on the offensive line, it is to understand the play to know what your blocking assignments are so that whoever has the ball can get to where he needs to go to break free to get down the field. If our goal is just heaven, I do what I do because I want to go to heaven, it's going to be hard. It's going to be very difficult to achieve that. We've got to learn that heaven is the reward and that's all about us. If it's just our goal of being in heaven and not going to hell, it's a very self-centered goal. So our goal has really got to get to the point, and this is where we can get to the point of living faithfully. Our goal has to get to where it is God-focused. So if our goal becomes pleasing God instead of focused on what we get out of it, if our goal is not the, the ribbon or the medal, but our goal is the achievement of pleasing the Creator, then receiving the medal at the end is going to be much easier. But if all we're worried about is whether or not we cross the finish line and not what we do to cross the finish line successfully, we're going to struggle. So as we 
repent and we change and we become converted and our mind becomes more like the mind of Christ. Christ's goal was not to get back to heaven when he was living here on earth. His goal was to do the will of the Father. That's what conversion is about. And we are told that we are supposed to have a mind that's transformed to be like the mind of Christ. That's about this change right here that happens, that our mind changes. And so as we talk about conversion and we see these stories, and we're really focusing on the, 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 the history of the people becoming Christians, but I want you to understand that becoming a Christian means becoming Christ-like. It, it means getting to where your goal in life is pleasing God, and when your goal becomes pleasing God and you start making your choices, your, your big ones and your little ones every day, that your mind has become so transformed to be Christ-like that you don't even have to think about whether or not this is a godly decision. You're thinking in a godly manner. It's your second nature. Or your first, maybe it should be your first nature. Maybe that's the way we should put it, right? Then receiving the reward of heaven becomes something that becomes natural because you have a mind like Christ. And that's when you have true, full conversion, significant life-altering change. All right. So as we think about the 3,000, we don't get to see all of that in these people's lives. We don't, we don't read their life history from the point that they became a Christian moving on through the rest of their lives. We don't know what kind of change they had. We, we, were, we get some stories in some of Paul's writings about, you know, those that became Christians and then were stirring problems up and things like that. So obviously they didn't have complete conversion. And then we read stories of others who, who did mighty, mighty things. The, the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, what did they do after they became Christians? Immediately, we, re, we have to read a little bit about what they did. The end of chapter 2. What does the end of chapter 2 tell us? Verse 44. Anybody want to read verse 44 on through, say, 47? They met and they shared. And... They shared? <laughs> Sounds like such a common sense thing. We teach our little kids to do it, don't we? All who believed were together and had all things in common. That is something we do not do very well today. Okay, Now, we have some very giving people, but the idea of having all things in common is not a common idea to the church. If, if, and this was a conversation I had with the church at Valiant when I left there five years ago because there was some, the church was in great financial shape, but they were making the move to hire a full-time minister. And there were several in the church that that just, the whole idea of having a financial obligation like that really, really scared them. And I had a conversation, I actually taught a lesson, and I just did some estimates. I didn't know anybody's specific financial situation individually within the church, but I did some estimates. And I was like, that morning I walked around the parking lot and I looked at the cars and I go, well, you know, that car's probably worth about $10,000 and that one's probably worth about $60,000 and you add all that up and then you think about all the homes and the land and you know people down there there's not uncommon a lot of them own you know six seven hundred two thousand three thousand acres you know uh, and they consider themselves to be somewhat impoverished because they live meager lives as you know dirt farmers but they own thousands of acres of land and you know, and you start just throwing some numbers on the board, and you're like, well, what if the average income, let's go on a low estimate here of each family in this church is this, and it's like, if the church were to really get into some financial struggles here as a organization, 
I, I'm going to estimate, not knowing what debts might be, you know, here, that this little small church probably has access if we were to sell a few acres or sell an extra car or sell a vacation home that some of them had. You know, we have easy access to tens of millions of dollars if we truly have all things in common. Now, what about a church the size of Eastside? Because that little church had about, that, that particular morning, there were about 85 people there that Sunday morning. What about a church the size of Eastside? If we truly have all things in common, how many resources do we really have? And if we were really, truly willing, if we had a brother or sister in need, to actually go sell something that we owned so that the finances would be available to help them, then would any of us have struggles? Now we start talking about communal living. We start talking about true communism, okay? Not as a political idea, but as a service um, and caring for one another idea that's actually taught in the scriptures. So they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, I don't think they all just went and sold their houses and nobody had anywhere to live. I think they were selling the things that they had in excess to make sure other people were taken care of. I wasn't there. Um, they seem to have still had houses to live in as we read on through the book of Acts. So I, I'm pretty certain they didn't sell every single possession they had. Okay? But they sold what they needed to sell to make sure that their brothers and sisters in Christ were taken care of. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, that was still the center of worship. It was the Jewish temple, and they would go there in the synagogues later on in other cities. And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Okay, that last statement is very important when we start talking about the idea of conversion as people became Christians. What's well, something else that is part of becoming a Christian? They were added. They were added to the church. Okay, they were added to the universal body of believers, the kingdom of God. Um, now, Jim McGuigan, if you're familiar with Jim McGuigan, has got some writings and teachings where where we commonly refer to the church and the kingdom synonymously, he looks at the church as being a subset of the kingdom because God is over all. And every, one day every knee will bow, and the church is the body of believers, and yet the entire universe is subject to the creator. And so Jim McGuigan kind of looks at the church as a subset of the kingdom, not completely synonymous with the kingdom and his teachings. Um, but Christians were added to the church, to the body of believers that Paul writes to us and equates to being the bride of Christ, okay, and that relationship and the way that we uh, support and love and give back to God. So as we think about this, this idea of conversion and we see what happened here with the saints in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, we know they heard the word, we have every evidence that they believed what they heard, their actions showed a confession and that they chose to respond and that they were baptized, the actions of the way that they lived their lives, as we read verses 44 through 47, show that there was a change or that there was a repentance in the way that they lived because they were getting together, they were studying the word, they were serving one another, they were sharing with one another, and so their actions showed also that there was a change or a repentance that happened with them. And so we get these steps of 
salvation that we commonly refer to and we see a complete conversion happening with these people. That makes sense? Okay. Questions about the day of Pentecost? I don't I can't give you a full breakdown on how the Holy Spirit works and all that, okay? I haven't I haven't completely figured that one out yet. I try to listen to the Holy Spirit and I've seen him work in my life many, many times, but I don't fully understand the whole tongues of fire and sound of a mighty rushing wind thing, okay? Uh, I, I haven't experienced that, so. All right, so let's turn over to Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> now, in Acts chapter 8, we have just, we're just coming out of, and we don't have much time left here, but we have just come out of the story of Stephen. Somebody tell me something about Stephen. Okay, I'm, I'm testing your Bible knowledge here. The first martyr that we read about. Well, other than Jesus himself, right? <laughs> yeah, he's the first Christian martyr. Uh, he was stoned to death for his beliefs. And who was standing by while that happened? Holding the cloaks of those who were doing the stoning? Saul. Saul. Saul was standing by. And we get into Acts chapter 8, and we read Saul was consenting to his death, and there was great persecution that arose against the church. Saul was going around having people drag out of their homes and thrown in prison if they had uh, professed to be followers of Christ. And so we have that going on, and as a result of that, those who were preaching and teaching the gospel, what did they do? They scattered. Okay, so all of this was mostly taking place right in Jerusalem. And Jesus has said, I want you to go and preach the gospel, and I want you to go where? Uh, yeah, but he started off with saying, right here. And then you go out there, and then you go to the ends of the earth, right? And they were very, very soon, I mean, we're not very far into this, but they're all just still right there in that that area and then this persecution arose and they began to scatter but as they scattered they didn't stop preaching the good news the gospel they continued to preach and we read in Acts chapter 8 up in verse 4 that Philip where did Philip go Samaria okay now um, some of your Bibles will say city of Samaria uh, some will say a city in Samaria um, and so he went depending on uh, original manuscripts, he went to a city in Samaria, and it may have been a city that was known as Samaria, but he, he went to Samaria. Now, where, where and what is Samaria? Kind of a forbidden land between the Judah and Galilee, if you will, okay. in the first century. Okay. So, if we... Do any of you have, any of you have Bible... Um, Bibles? Do any of you have maps in your Bibles? Okay. There was this, here's, here's the Mediterranean Sea, and nestled right here along the Med is this nation of Israel. Um, and I'm not a good cartographer, obviously. So um, David and his son Solomon, well, Saul before David, they were kings, and they were kings over all of this area. How many tribes of, of Israel were there? Twelve, okay? Twelve tribes of Israel, and of course the Levites did not have their own land. They were serving in the, 
the temple area, but uh, the tribes of Joseph's sons were there ended up being two, Ephraim and Manasseh, and so we still end up with 12 different divisions of land and all of this good stuff. So David, Saul, David, and Solomon were kings over all of this, but after Solomon, there was this rebellion among his son and, and others, and the kingdom ended up being divided. You had the southern kingdom, and you had the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was Judea, which is often referred to as Judah as well, and that's where Jerusalem was located, the northern kingdom was referred to in the Old Testament most frequently as Israel and later became known as Samaria, basically. Now, there, there are some additional areas there, but for in general, the northern kingdom, which was mostly all the tribes except for Judea and Benjamin and half of uh, some of the descendants of, of Joseph, so... You had a little mixing in there from some of the others, but for the most part, it was, you know, the other ten tribes that were up here in the northern area. They intermarried with all the, the nations around them, and they ended up being what the Judeans referred to, or the Jews, what the Jews later referred to and considered to be half-breeds. They were intermixed. So genetically, racially, they were no longer pure descendants of Jacob, okay? So they had mixed in with these other nations around them. And that's what Samaria was, and that's why there was so much disdain between them. It was the Judeans considered that they had maintained the bloodline and they had stayed pure, and these guys up here had just intermixed. If any of you like the Harry Potter books, these were these were mudbloods. <laughs> and if I offended you by bringing up Harry Potter, I apologize. So... Contemporary example. Um, so when it says Philip went to Samaria, he went to the nation. We read the story of the Good Samaritan. He went to the nation that the Judeans looked down upon because they'd intermixed and not held to the, the instructions that God had given when they came into the promised land of not marrying with the other tribes. And they had done just that. Um, that's where he went and preached the gospel. He went down to the city of Samaria, preached Christ to them, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. And then we read about Simon the sorcerer, and we also get down to the Ethiopian, and we are about to run out of time because we've got about one minute left. But I think it's important to note that on the day of Pentecost, the gospel was preached, and what else happened? We talked about the Holy Spirit. There was a there was a miraculous event that happened, right? So there were miracles. And as we look in Acts chapter eight, in Samaria, the gospel was preached, and Simon performed. I mean, not Simon, but Philip performed miracles. Miracles were confirming and proving to people that the word that was being preached was true. And all these people that we read in these first examples of conversion heard the word, they believed, they uh, responded eventually in repentance, confession, repentance, and baptism, but miracles were there that helped convince them that what was being taught was the true word. Okay? Now, as we get into the end of the book, of uh, the end of chapter 8, and I don't, if you want to 
whoever teaches next week, we'll talk about that after class, but whoever teaches next week, um, we can probably spend a little time talking about Simon and, and the, the Ethiopian eunuch. Because um, the Ethiopian eunuch has a whole lot of, of good examples here. And as we get to the eunuch, we will find, even though it was still Philip, there were, this did not happen with the Ethiopian eunuch. He was just convinced by the word itself. Okay. All right. Any questions? Have a great day.